Hello everyone, welcome to the Talking Pharmacy podcast, where we look back at what's been happening in pharmacy over the last week or so. My name is Richard Thomas, I'm the editor of Pharmacy Magazine, and joining me on the pod this week are Rob Darricott, editor of P3 Pharmacy, Arthur Walsh, editor of Pharmacy Network News, Neil Trainis, editor of Independent Community Pharmacist, and Helena Beer, editor of Training Matters. No producer Sam overseeing things this week. He's let us loose on our own, which is always a risky thing to do. We're recording this pod on the Friday, but it won't be available to download until Monday because none of us can work the editing software, which means if any big story breaks over the weekend, well, it's tough. But we've still got loads to talk about, so let's start with Good Week, Bad Week. So, Arthur, who's had a good week for you? Hi, Richard. Uh, there was a good announcement yesterday from the charity Pharmacist Support, uh, the charity for the profession, the, which is in the name, obviously. Um, it's marking its 180th anniversary and it's announcing a new uh, sort of mental health scheme or a new sort of um, scheme for pharmacists and trainee pharmacists who are facing uh, mental health challenges, uh, depression, anxiety and so on. They've teamed up with the Council Counselling and Family Centre and um, through this partnership, they're going to offer six uh, funded counselling sessions for uh, pharmacists who are battling poor mental health. I thought it was a really good, uh, really good initiative. Very important at a time like this when, you know, workload, stress and so on are a real issue for so many pharmacists. I just thought it really um, highlights the important role that, that the charity plays for pharmacists who are facing difficulties. They also offer, you know, financial support, all, all kinds of support to, to pharmacists who are facing difficult times. Um, the chief executive of the charity, Danielle, Danielle Hunt, said uh, she talked about how the charity has come such a long way from from where it was 180 years ago and how it's sort of, you know, continuing to strive to adapt to the, the changing needs of the profession. Uh, they also sort of highlighted continuing uh, initiatives. Um, there's a, a, a arrangement with the PDA whereby, you know, the PDA donates one pound to the charity for each of its members. So, um, so lots of good stuff happening there. Yeah, 180 years. That's a tremendous achievement, isn't it? 180 years anniversary for pharmacist support. And that's like you say, Arthur, a charity that in its various forms over the years has done so much vital work. And, and yeah, this new service, very important, um, counselling pharmacists with their mental health issues and so many suffering from stress and burnout at the moment. So, yeah, happy 180th to, to Danielle and the team. That, well, I'm not saying they're 180. Oh, you know what I mean. Um, so thanks, Arthur. That's a really good nomination there. Let's go to you then, Helena. Uh, who's had a good week for you? Um, my good week is for NICE and their new guidance on chronic pain, as I think it's a really brilliant development. So the new guidance, which was published on the 7th of April, I believe, um, it acknowledges the complexity of chronic pain and the fact that no patient experiences pain in the same way. Um, it underlines the importance of appropriate assessment, careful drug choice, exercise programs, psychological therapies and um, acupuncture as well um, in improving the experience and outcomes of care for people with chronic pain. So it's a really um, patient-centred approach, changing the emphasis to one of managing pain in a, an individualised way and moving away from those tr more traditional um, drug routes for, for treatment. Um, and it highlights that actually there's not much evidence to suggest that drugs work all that well for primary pain. Um, and there's a risk of adverse effects such as addiction with the likes of codeine. 
Um, and it really highlights that exercise and also therapy like uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, for example, um, could potentially work better than those those drug treatments. Um, experts and patient representatives have kind of welcomed the guidance, stating that they hope it will provide more consistency in treatment and also um, more support on the NHS for people experiencing chronic pain. Um, and I think we've heard time and again that people are often not told about the risks of some of the potentially addictive pain medication um, kind of issues that there are. So um, people have also commented that that the guideline in highlighting these risks um, is a really, really positive thing. Um, and I think in general, it's a good reminder for pharmacy teams to, to kind of talk to customers who are struggling with pain um, and helping them to work out the best course of action, which might be to go to speak to their GP about the different options for referral or more specialist advice about exercising with chronic pain and things like that. Um, but it's also it might be helpful for pharmacy teams to, to kind of start conversations with customers discussing things um, that they can do themselves to manage the knock-on effects of their pain. So if the pain is affecting their sleep, discussing sleep hygiene and relaxation techniques, um, that kind of thing could be helpful. So I think it's a good week uh, that's got a lot of food for thought. Yeah, I, I found this really interesting. Um, there's definitely been a shift in our approach to understanding and managing chronic pain, I think, in recent years. And like you say, Helena, we seem to be moving away from thinking that, that chronic pain is something that be, can be cured uh, with a drug when it's not always the case, is it? Because it's caused by a complex mixture of biological and psychological factors, I guess. And, and pain medicines, painkillers, in fact, we shouldn't even call them painkillers uh, anymore. Um, but they're often no better at alleviating chronic pain than than placebo pills. And yeah, that's what this nice guidance alludes to. Um so, yeah, clinical thinking, moving towards targeted treatments, I suppose, and, and other approaches, like you say, H, acupuncture, exercise, diet, talking therapies, mindfulness, lots of stuff. Uh, it's a really interesting guideline. Um, and like you say, Helena, lots of food for thought for, for care professionals and for pharmacists and their teams. Uh, yeah, thank you for that, Helena. Um, Neil, let's go to you next. Who's had a good week for you? Yeah, thanks, Richard. My good week goes to Duncan Rudkin. Chief Executive of the GPHC, of course, who uh, I interviewed him uh, this week and uh, we, we spoke about the March assessment. Um, it was a very frank interview. He was, he was honest. He didn't, he didn't go hiding or he didn't, you know, he didn't try to sort of uh, fudge the issue. He was very uh, honest and, and, and to the point. Um, and he told me that uh, the regulator will be uh, look, uh, looking to, well, are actually running a, a, an internal review into what went wrong in the months leading up to um, the review. Now, of course, if you cast your mind back to March 2020, uh, March the 25th, I think it was 2020, um, the, the exam was uh, well postponed. Uh, the announcement was made, and uh, it wasn't until November 2020, those eight months that, um, for those eight months that the students didn't know whether or not when the exam would be. There was no there was no announcement, so they were left hanging a bit for those eight months, which we did talk about. Um, and, uh, and, and in November, they did announce the the, the new dates, March the 17th and 18th, for that for the assessment sitting. Um, Duncan didn't, as I said, he was, uh, you know, very honest and, 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 and he did understand. They did say that the GPHC did understand the, the stress and anxiety that the students went through during, during that period. And that's why they've, they, they're running this um, internal, uh, internal review, which he says is well underway. Now, I did ask him whether or not it would, there would be any kind of independent element to that, because I think a lot of people would be a lot more comfortable 
if there was a, if the, um, I mean, indeed, you know, a lot. Some people have asked for the any review to be independent, not not internal. Um, and uh, he did say that you know the, the GPHC would want some degree of in, um, external challenge and external scrutiny. So that suggests to me that perhaps once they've um, finished their internal review, they will actually um, look, look to sort of have a, an, a, an external contribution to this. Obviously, the Professional Standards Authority looking on, um, um, you know, looking at this probably no doubt very, very carefully. Um, so, yeah, it's, it, it's a good thing. What else you might say, what else could Duncan Ruckin say? You know, it was a right mess. We all know that. It caused a lot of, lot, of, uh, lot of aggro, a lot of problems for students at a time when they didn't need that extra aggro. Um, and, uh, you know, but you might say, what else could he have said? He, he could have just brushed it out of the carpet. He didn't do that. And, and I think he does deserve um, a bit of credit this week for, for, for actually, you know, getting this review underway. Now, the review will be, he told me that the review... Um, well, the GPHC will report to its governing council, set out what it has learned about the March assessment, and that information will be contained in a report that will be included in the public papers for its council meeting on May the 13th. So we wait till May the 13th for the review to be published, and then we'll see where we go from there. So for me, it's Duncan Rudkin. So I, I suppose, you the question is, will, it, will an internal review be enough to assage the GPHC's critics? I mean, you, you mentioned there and in your, your, your piece um, in this month's ICP that... There are people calling for an, an independent review. So, will the GPHC do enough here? Do you think? No, I don't. I don't think an internal review will be enough, Richard. I, I, I think that once it's been published, I think there will be still questions asked, and I think the Professional Standards Association will be um, wanting to, to look into. It. I mean, Duncan himself even even alludes to that. He, he says that you know that the GPHC will be. Um, we want that external um, challenge and external scrutiny, and no doubt some, some of our auditors, I think, were his words. So Duncan himself acknowledges that the uh, PSA will be looking at on, uh, looking from, from not too far away at this, and I don't think an internal review will be enough. I, I, um, but to give Duncan his, his dues, you know, he did say that the GPHC will also publish a, a quote fuller, more strategic set of reflections. Uh, which will look at factors such as the assessment model and the procurement process, and other questions need to be answered, like you know why did they, you know how many uh, assessment sittings providers did they approach? I know it was a difficult time, you know March March 2020, the start of the pandemic, a very frantic and, and, and horrendous time. But you know nevertheless, did they was the tender process a, a thorough one? Because there's been a lot of criticism of Pearson View as well uh, over the census being. Fully booked up, not enough capacity. GPHC and Pearson Vu together criticised for not not creating enough capacity, which you know, despite the pandemic, is is inexcusable. You you know, you you're holding an exam here, um, and uh, then it needs to be done properly, um, despite the, the the issues that the pandemic presented. So, uh, you know, I've, 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 those questions need to be answered. We did put that question to Duncan. We did say, you know, how many sittings assessment providers did you approach? And he didn't answer the question directly. He did say that a number. A number of uh, providers were approached, but he, would, he couldn't give a definitive number because obviously um, there were procurement, uh, commercial sensitivity, and commercial issues that he was unable to, to actually say how many. But but um, these are questions that need to be answered. And, I, and uh, if the internal review does that, fair enough. But um, I think I don't. I don't personally think an internal review will be enough. I think the professional associate, professional standards authority, will want to have its say. Yeah, well, watch the space indeed. I mean, the, the PSA. Uh, has been quite critical of the GPHC in the past o- over uh, other aspects of its work. So I, I wouldn't be a bit surprised if the uh, the overseer, the overseer regulator, has a look at this. But 
we shall see. Uh, intern review for now, and let, let's see where that goes. So thanks, Neil. Uh, my good week, very quickly, uh, my good week is for budesonide. Uh, now, we reported on this last week, I think. Um, early treatment with inhaled budesonide shortens recovery time among COVID-19 patients being treated in the community. And this is part of the Oxford-led PRINCIPAL trial. Um, really encouraging news, isn't it? The relatively cheap, widely available drug with, with very few side effects can shorten recovery times from covid uh, and help people to stay better once they feel recovered as well. I think this is a, a wonderful trial, actually. Researchers have done some fantastic work. Uh, it's all been done in the community as well. And uh, the inhaler picture police were, were monitoring the reporting of this in the press very closely this week, and you don't want to upset them. Um, but a good week for good old, humble old budesonide. <laughs> So it's bad week time. Rob, let's bring you into the party. Uh, who's had a bad week for you, Rob? Hi there, Richard. Uh, so bad week, several governments, uh, um, and not just ours, but also uh, the the EU are seriously in the frame. Um, so a couple of things came out this week. A piece by the UN Human Rights Commissioner and former Irish President Mary Robinson in the Times, talking about um, about patents and vaccine patents, and basically pointing out that, along with 100, 174 former world leaders and Nobel laureates, that uh, maybe at the WTO there should be a temporary suspe- temporary suspension of the COVID nineteen vac- vaccine patents. Now, um, Europe, the EU, and uh, the UK government. Uh, among others, are blocking efforts which have been led by South Africa and India and supported by over 100 countries to share the recipe for COVID vaccines. And there's a whole series of sort of dire predictions about what happens if if we don't get um, the vaccines into everybody, because we're not out of it till we're all out of it. Um, and a suggestion that in the, at the current rate of progress, um, some small countries in distant parts of the world. It could be 2024 before their their populations are vaccinated. Um, you know, we're in the we're not even halfway through 2021 yet. So the idea that we you know we're we're going to get out of this uh, quickly is is one for the birds. And obviously the longer the vaccine the longer the um, the virus is around, the more the chance of mutations. And there are, I see there are some predictions that um that uh, mutations um, may well make the current vaccine set up uh, ineffective um, before too long. And so um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a case really for governments to get together, isn't it? I mean, I know that once politicians get involved, we can see all this kind of thing kicking off. But I mean, particularly in a, we've already had on the on the pod this week, Arthur's great story about um, pharmacist support and 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 how the charity there is is dealing with mental health uh, problems and issues within the profession. Um, in the wider public, you know that I think people have just had enough. We want to get through this, and the idea that there's going to be someone holy row about how fast and and how we actually achieve um, genuine worldwide vaccination of the population just seems to me to be. Um, 
awful news really and I, I just hope that there's some good sense comes out of it and that people start thinking actually start following the words that they've been saying about the importance of making sure that the vaccine is available to everybody I mean the UK has led the world and the UK the publicly funded um, uh, Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine development you know has already been delivered at cost um, and it just seems to me that we could be we could be waiting a long time if, if governments don't see sense. Very good point you make there, Rob. I mean, the the, yeah, the absolutely key point in all of this, this, as you said, Rob, is that none of us are out of it globally uh, until we're all out of it. So this has really got to be resolved. And it's uh, if if countries just look inwards on things like this, then we're never going to escape from this this global pandemic, are we? But Neil, what did you make of this story? Yeah, just a, just a brief one. But yes, I, no, I totally agree with Rob and. It raises some really good points, but I, um, I think we, we can't. Uh, when you're looking at the, the, the global rollout of vaccines, um, you just always annoy. It continuously, really, really frustrates us, or probably all of us, that you have countries that are still uh, refusing and stopping and restricting the rollout of vaccines in their within their borders. And now we have Denmark, who have uh, now decided to stop giving the uh, the AstraZeneca vaccine because of the, these concerns over these rare blood clots. Um, and they're the first European country to, to do so fully. I mean, not even France and Germany have gone down there. So I, I, one of the big hurdles here is is, is, is the damage that these countries have done to the confidence in these vaccines. And we've, we've said it before, but, you know, how, how do you rebuild the confidence in people who are now really wary in taking these vaccines after the shenanigans of France, Germany and, our, and countries like Denmark? Yeah, I mean, it's it's... Yeah, slightly different different point to what Rob was making, but the end result is the same, isn't it? If if people either haven't got the vaccines readily or or lack confidence in the ones that are available, then like I said before, we're we're never going to uh, we're never going to escape from this. I I read somewhere, I think at the beginning of this month, that uh, the European Medicines Agency reported something like uh, 169 cases of this rare type of blood clotting after 34 million, I think it was. AstraZeneca doses that have been administered in the European economic area. And I'm just trying to work that out literally on the back of an envelope now. And I think that that works out, if my maths is right, at an incident rate of 0.005%. So I don't know, this, this to me is the precautionary principle gone mad. And of course, importantly, there's still no causal link has been proven between um having a jab and um, blood clots. Rob, do you want to come back in? Yeah, just final word for me. It's going to be very interesting to see what Biden does because there are reports that the White House is considering very seriously sort of joining up with the South Africans and the uh, and India and arguing for a suspension. So, um, I mean, given the challenges that, uh, that, that Biden's got back at home uh, with one national news network, news in inverted commas, actively arguing about whether anybody should have a vaccine at all. Um, be very interesting if he was to stick his head above the parapet and be the first, you know, give a really clear signal from the US that um, that they're going to support support this. Yeah, I think stories actually come out today, Rob, saying that the pressure has really been heaped on Biden to do exactly that. So, yeah, we'll see. Uh, we'll see what the US does and, and maybe others will then will then follow. Could I just add one other thing, Richard? I just had a, a quick shout out that um, there was a couple. Of, there was a media event. Uh, we're talking on Friday. There was a media event today um, being held by the Independent Sage Group, 
and just it's really interesting to see she's popped up a few times on the TV. Oksana Pizik, who is the, uh, the UCL's lead on outbreak of infectious diseases and global citizenship. And she's also a lecturer in practice and policy at the UCL School of Pharmacy. So, you know, Oksana's in the middle of all of the this as a as a as a very wise or sort of talking head. And I just think uh, you want to be recognised for for that. That's that's a really a really nice thing to see. Yeah, she's been excellent. She really has. That's a very good call, Rob. Um, so thank you for that. Let's go to Arthur next. Then, uh, who's had a bad week for you, Arthur? Well, twenty twenty turns out to have been a bad year for OTC drug manufacturers. And I guess pharmacies that depend on the retail side of their business. Um, the PAGB has just published its report for 2020, and it's uh, got some worrying findings there about the OTC market. Um, overall, the the market shrank by around four percent, but the most dramatic uh, reduction was in the size of the cough and cold market, which shrank by just under 30 percent. Uh, this is attributed to things like the like social distancing measures. Uh, people, you know, staying at home. So basically less cold and flu circulating, which is obviously a great thing for, you know, public health and patients and in our respiratory health. But um, it's uh, really sort of uh, the G- what the, the PAGB is saying is that, you know, the industry needs to, you know, respond to this and decide, you know, uh, what are we going to do down the road? You know, could these be sort of, uh, could this be a long-term trend? And, you know, are we going to have to sort of, recalibrate our approach to to self-care because another key finding there was that you know while cough and cold shrank dramatically um vitamins vms uh the size of the market increased by around 15 percent so people were potentially you know thinking about self-care in a more preventative way sort of holistic you know thinking about health and nutrition and so on so um so yeah so interesting findings from the from the pagb and uh, possibly worrying for for people who sort of depend on that um that footfall that retail uh, side of the business in in the winter months yeah really worrying arthur it's it's kind of an issue that slipped a little bit under the the, the radar that the state of otc and it's definitely taken a, a hit during the pandemic as the as pagb said and and people's habits have changed haven't they um quite significantly as a result of of covid and uh pharmacies i mean it's it's not a massive part anymore of, of of a typical pharmacy's turnover OTC, but it it's still significant and and any income or revenue is important, isn't it? Um, so we'll see whether this trend you know reverts or, or or carries on. I suppose another aspect, and you did touch on this, Arthur, is is footfall. I mean, if footfall is down into to community pharmacies, then then that does have implications for. NHS services, doesn't it? And face-to-face contact. So that it might have wider implications for the sector too, if, if footfall doesn't recover to its uh, its normal levels. That's an interesting point, actually. I spoke to um, Jonathan Power, the chief ex- executive of Avicenna the other week, and he said that um, they, they've noticed this sort of drop in footfall as, and part of it is um, people having remote consultations with their GP and getting used to remote consultations and then being less inclined to think of popping into the pharmacy. So one way in which they're trying to become competitive is they're launching their own sort of remote consultations through through their app, their patient's app. Um, so yeah, lots of um, 
different uh, interesting things at play here, I think. Yeah, really, really interesting. I'm sure virtual consultations will be an area that we're going to return to many times in, in the coming months uh, in the podcast. Uh, like you say, Arthur, some, some interesting dynamics at play here. Okay, thanks for that, Helena. Let's go to you. Who's had a bad week for you? Um, I think it's been a bad week for British smoking habits. Um, So since 2011, smoking rates in the UK have been on the decline and numbers fell quite significantly between 2018 and 2019. Um, And statistics show that around half of current smokers want to quit. So everything seemed to point in the right direction or it did until COVID hit. So um, research from Mintel that came out on the 15th of April reveals that 30% of smokers are smoking more regularly or have been since the start of the pandemic, rising to 39% among 18 to 34-year-old smokers. Um, 51% of all smokers are turning to what Mintel has dubbed stress smoking as a result of the pandemic. And worryingly, 10% of all smokers have started smoking again after having quit. Um, 42% of vapors have also been vaping more regularly during the pandemic. So it's not just traditional tobacco that's seeing seeing a rise. Um, Despite all that, Mintel's research highlights that 65% of smokers are worried that they're more at risk of the virus because they smoke. And 69% say their respiratory health has become more important to them since the pandemic started. So there's a clear disconnect between concerns and actions. Um, And this is a complete contrast to other data that we've been seeing throughout the pandemic. So in January, the Charity Action on Smoking and Health reported that a million people quit smoking during the first lockdown, with hundreds of thousands of people maintaining that. Um, And they said that 2020 had the highest rates of successful quitting on record, which is interesting now that we see Mintel's research. um, It points to a lot of, of relapse. Um, And I think we've talked before on the podcast about health inequalities as a result of the pandemic and the knock on effects that that's having on things like mental health and cancer services. And I think the smoking cessation is a really important one there as well. Um, Lots of stop smoking services have been put on hold or paired back over the pandemic. Um, Although I do know that some have carried on and innovative ways of working have been adopted by many pharmacies to maintain the support they offer to people wanting to quit. Um, But I think if ever there was a good time to really champion and promote stop smoking services, it's now. Um, I think in response to Mintel's research, Hazel Cheeseman, who's the director of policy at um, ASH, said every smoker should know help is out there um, to help them stop. Um, And I think in January, Public Health England said that four in 10 smokers plan to quit smoking in 2021. So there's a huge opportunity for pharmacies to help tackle these issues that Mintel have revealed and build on the success that Ash had highlighted last year um, and really promote the support they can offer to their communities in this area. Yes, indeed. Big opportunity and some really worrying news then, especially as smoking rates, like you said, have been coming down you know, fairly consistently. So you, we want that to continue. Big opportunity for pharmacy, as you mentioned, Helena. Absolutely. Thank you for that. Uh, Neil, bad week for you. Yeah, it's not really a bad week as such. It's more of a wake-up call um, for remote prescribing and remote pres- prescribers. Um, and I, about, about a week ago, the PDA um, sort of warned 
gave us a, a timely reminder if we needed, if uh, prescribers needed it, that uh, you know people who are working for an online pharmacy company or people who are thinking of starting an online pharmacy could be putting patients at risk if medicines are not dispensed properly or without a G, or, or without that patient's uh, GP's knowledge. Um, and it's it, it's it, people might think this is very obvious stuff, and this is you know you, you must be communication lines must be. Uh, you know, maintained between a, a patient and the GP, the pharmacist, you have to have that communication. But unfortunately, in the past, it hasn't been the case. And, and we've seen with tragic consequences, um, uh, the results. Um, the PDA, just to sort of recap, the PDA has basically urged its members to, to assess the risk management measures they have in place to, to judge the safety of uh, providing P medicines without access to a patient's notes and to consider how likely that it is that a patient may be ordering those medicines without first talking to a clinician. And of course, they uh, quite rightly they they say that patients need to be safe when uh, prescribed POMs, which would require monitoring and, and follow up. Um, and this all comes on the back of uh, a tragic death of um, a practice nurse called Emma, um, Katie Emma Corrigan, who died from excess consumption of codeine. Um, and uh, she had a history of chronic pain as a result of a neck complaint. She had anxiety and depression, uh, depression, uh, and she became addicted to pain relieving medication, uh, uh, medication including Zapain. Um, now it was found that she was prescribed too much of uh, too much medication, and she'd requested repeat prescriptions uh, prematurely. Uh, her GP had refused to prescribe her any more Zapain um, if she didn't come into the practice and discuss it with 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 them. And she didn't want to do that, so uh, no more prescriptions for her. So she went elsewhere, um, online pharmacies. And even other GPs to to find uh, this this medication, and uh, the, the the communication lines at that point had broken down, and, and her GP wasn't able to sort of monitor her and keep tabs on her, and and uh, in the end, uh, tragically, she 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 died from excess codeine uh, consumption. So it, it's a more of a timely reminder, really, of the dangers of remote prescribing, and and um, and really to get that right, because if you don't, you know, this is the kind of tragic things that can happen. Yeah, very timely reminder. Um... The, the coroner's report in that, that case you mentioned, Neil, was, was really interesting, um, pointing out that there's no real system or procedure for, for alerting pay, um, pharmacies nationally you know, for patients in this type of situation. There, there seems to be a, a lack of a, a proper connectivity between private providers to the patient's GP as well, doesn't it? And um, there have been calls to, to tighten regulation for, for codeine products, which I think most pharmacists would agree with, as well as expanding the the, the remit of the, the CQC to cover instances like this. Um, it, I'm sure this is one of the biggest problems on the GP, GPHC's playlist at the moment, um, um, online pharmacies and supply of this type of product. I think it was, was it last year that there was, um, the GPHC placed uh, conditions on, I think, nearly 40 online pharmacies, which was all to do with the supply of, of codeine linked to so... Yeah, like you say, Neil, um, uh, a wake-up call and I think uh, a system that probably needs tightening up and regulation that needs tightening up uh, quite considerably to, to prevent uh, a repeat of the, the tragic case of that former practice nurse that you mentioned. So we've just got time for a quick any other business. Uh, Neil, have you noticed anything this week? Yeah, I did. A very tragic um a case of a pharmacist who, who passed away on the 1st of April uh, from COVID. Um, a pharmacist who, who worked at uh, in Liverpool, her name was Sana Massoud. 
um, and she worked at Neil's Pharmacy in, in Liverpool. And she was just 30 years old when she passed away from COVID on, on, on April the 1st. Um, and her family have set up a, a, a fund in her name, in her memory, to, um, to raise money to build classrooms uh, in schools in rural impo- impoverished areas of, of Pakistan. So that orphans and, and children in need can can have proper um, you know places to, to learn because I, I, from what, what one can gather uh, at the moment you know educational facilities in, in those areas of, of Pakistan are not are not great. So this is a fund that the family have set up. Um, we've done a story on it on um, on Pharmacy Network News, of course, and uh, and uh, yeah, just a, just that, that caught my eye. So I thought I'd give that a mention. Yes, really good deal. L- look out for that story uh, on Fancy Network News and the uh, and, and the fundraising initiative. Um, that's a, a very a very tragic case indeed. Um, who else, Helen? Have you noticed anything this week? Yeah, it was just a, a news story that, that caught my eye yesterday. Which, after some quite um, uh, well depressing I guess um, stories that we have been discussing just to kind of lighten the mood um, this was a story about um, animal welfare officers being called to a case in um, Poland people weren't opening the windows of their houses because they were worried that this animal would work its way in um, and when they went to discover what it was it turned out to be a croissant um, and it was up a tree and had been there for a couple of days and was terrifying the neighbourhood and it turned out to be a croissant. What, cheese and ham or they didn't say? I think just plain. Um, but yes, cheese and ham would have been nice too. Okay, that's uh, that's completely bonkers. Uh, Rob, what have you seen? Anything as silly as that? Uh, well, it, it just reminded me of um, of a, a story I heard on a, a podcast. I listened to a podcast called Criminal, which is about um, all kinds of weird cases, some quite some quite horrific. But then they do the odd lighter story, and they were doing a story about uh, they did a, um, a session about um, odd calls the police had been called in. It, it's mostly about the US, but it does cover has covered stories from Britain on on occasion. But this was this was a, where the police were called because somebody uh, thought that their flat was actually being burgled and they'd arrived back and could hear could hear all sorts of sounds coming from the flat. So they called the police and, and kept outside of the flat and waited for the police to arrive. The police went in, and it was in America, so they went in with kind of all guns drawn and everything. <laughs> and they heard this this noise and this thing going on in the, in the bathroom. And uh, after about five minutes, ten minutes, they realised that the, the, the sounds that were coming out of the bathroom were quite regular, and it turned out to be one of those automatic... Um, hoovering machines, you know, I think they're called a room bar, but it's the same kind of thing, isn't it? <laughs> that's uh, yeah, that is that's equally bonkers. Uh, I enjoyed those two. Um, well, I think we we better stop it there for another week. Uh, but before we go, I'd like to say uh, a special um, hello to uh, a new super fan. We've got a new super fan of the pod, everyone. None other than uh, Nigel Praetis, executive editor of the PJ, no less, saying on social media this week how much he loves our podcast. Well, he didn't use those words exactly, but Nigel, we know what you mean. Um, Let's really finish it. This time, my thanks to Rob, Neil, Arthur and Helen Edda. All the episodes of the Talking Fancy podcast are available on the Fancy Magazine website and from all your usual download sites. Now, just a quick reminder that uh, the P3 Pharmacy and Newmark webcast 
on the future of Scottish pharmacy post-COVID is available on demand on the P3 website. And we had a great discussion earlier this week, so please check it out. Uh, Lots in there of interest to pharmacists across the UK, actually. Uh, But for now, from all of us on the podcast, thanks very much for listening.